Welcome. Thank you for joining us today. So glad you're here. If this is your first time, we certainly hope it's not your last time. And I would invite you to click on the digital connection card up here in the corner and just let us know who you are and how we might be able to pray for you or if there's any questions we might be able to answer. And if this is your spiritual home, we say welcome to you and are grateful too that you found time to be with us today. I want to apologize. I'm dealing with a little bit of a bug and so my voice is a little hoarse and I apologize for that. It's just the crazy season we're all in. A couple of things I want to share with you this week. I had a great opportunity last Saturday night in the midst of an incredibly busy week. We also served meal at the community dinner at uh, St. Luke's Point of Grace downtown. And actually we ran out of food, had just enough to serve everyone. And so we saw all sorts of new faces, had great conversations, and just really grateful, just really grateful we can meet people's needs at this time. And then this past week on Thursday, we participated with the trunk retreat at Senior High, a way to bless our neighbors, and uh, Carolyn did a great job of decorating up the car, and, and grateful for all the fun we had for the volunteers that helped just encourage young people. Just a practical way of being in the church and uh, serving outside the building. But together as we worship this day, this is Reformation Sunday. And as we think about what that means for us as God's people, and it's a time when we are reminded of all the good work that took place during the Reformation some 500 plus years ago, when God's Word became available to God's people in a very practical way. Let me ask you a question as we think about Reformation Sunday. If you were on a big ship in the middle of the ocean and you fell overboard, what might the captain of that ship do when he or she saw you that you had fallen into the ocean? Would they tell you just to start swimming and point in the direction of land? Put your answer in the chat. What do you think? What do you think the captain would say? Do you think the captain would see that you're drowning in the ocean and might say something like, I'll throw you a life ring if you can prove to me that you're really worth saving? Uh, probably not, we hope, right? What have you done with your life so far? Have you created any useful inventions? Have you won the Nobel Peace Prize or any other important awards? Have you made your life significant? What would the captain ask while you were drowning? Do you think the captain would say, if you can climb up halfway up the side of the ship, then I'll pull you up the rest of the way to put some of the ownership on you? Would the captain make you try to work your way up the side of the ship when they can see that you're almost drowning? Of course not. That would not be what it would happen. They would rescue you, right? They would do everything they could. The captain or, and or one of the crew would probably throw you a life preserver or something you could hang on to to keep you afloat. And once you had a good hold of the flotation device, they would pull you back onto the ship, thus saving you from drowning. Let me read to you a verse from the book of Ephesians. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not because of works, lest any man should boast. You know, we are like that person drowning in the ocean, and God comes to rescue us. Not because of anything that we've done, but because of the simple fact that he loves us. So on this Reformation Sunday, we remember how Martin Luther and other Christians of his time, Christian leaders, wanted to change the way the church taught people about God's love. At that time, the church was telling people that they had to do all sorts of work to get their way into heaven. Uh, some people even said that they could pay their way into heaven. Well, Martin Luther knew that that's not what the Bible said. He knew that all of us were sinners and that we needed to be saved by Jesus. So Luther reformed, or he changed, if you will, the church for the better. He did that by telling people what the Bible said, by allowing the Bible to be translated into the people's language. And it was the implementation of the printing press 
that was invented about that same time that changed everything. It allowed the Bible to be made available to the common people so that people could read for themselves what the Bible said. It's simply this, we are saved by grace just because God loves us. It's nothing that we can brag about. It is simply a wonderful gift that he gives us. This is the story of Martin Luther. He got up to some pretty adventurous things. He was kidnapped by knights on horseback, lived in disguise in a castle, and helped some nuns escape from a convent by hiding them in barrels. But as a young man, he was troubled by a deep sense that he wasn't right with God. Once, in a thunderstorm, a lightning bolt nearly struck him. He thought he was going to die, and he cried out for help to one of the saints, saying rashly, Save me, and I'll become a monk. He survived, and so, true to his word, he gave up his studies as a lawyer and became a monk. His friends and family said he was wasting his talent. In the monastery, he started reading the Bible. He discovered that it was God's mercy and love that was all that was needed to be right with God. And for the first time in his life, he found a deep peace with God. Luther was invited to be a lecturer at the University of Wittenberg. He taught through books of the Bible, and his lectures were popular. Even ordinary people from the town came along. In those days, the Catholic Church was telling Christians that their good behavior could earn them heaven. But Luther knew from the Bible that no amount of good works could earn you forgiveness. Not even the Pope was able to give forgiveness from God. Only God could do that. Luther saw that the church had left behind what the Bible taught and was even making things up for its own gain. He decided he must teach against these false ideas. He made his complaints public by nailing them to the place in town where people published important documents the door of the castle church. He explained that it wasn't possible to buy God's forgiveness or to live a life that was good enough to deserve to know God. His writings showed that God wants to forgive the wrong we've done and that this is only possible because Jesus, the Son of God, came to pay the punishment that our wrong deserved. Jesus did this as he died in our place. Luther's ideas quickly spread throughout Europe thanks to a recent invention, the printing press. The Pope wrote a document saying that Luther had to take it all back, and if he didn't, he'd be treated as a heretic. Luther refused and publicly burned a copy of the Pope's letter. Luther's ideas shook things up religiously, politically, and culturally. He was soon summoned to stand before the emperor an answer for his supposed crimes of explaining what the Bible said. The emperor declared Luther an outlaw, banning his literature. And that's when he was rescued and went to live in disguise in a castle. Dressing in knight's clothing, he changed his name to Sir George and grew his hair and a beard and spent his time translating the New Testament. Again, it was published widely, meaning ordinary people could read the Bible for the first time. Luther then secretly returned to Wittenberg. He continued to write books and translate the Bible. He also got married and had a family. 
Europe was buzzing with Luther's message about the Bible. Today, 500 years on, the truths of the Bible that Luther knew continue to impact millions of people. People who've come to know God personally, knowing the peace and forgiveness Jesus offers us. The forgiveness that Luther found is still available today. We can all be in a right relationship with God because of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray. God, thank you for sending Jesus to save us from our sins. Thank you for throwing us the life preserver and saving our eternal lives. We're grateful, Jesus, for your sacrifice that gives us life. And we pray it through your strong name. Amen. We're in the third week of our series, Loving God and Loving People. And I'm going to guess that today's message is going to resonate with people in a different sort of way. Because I want to talk about how love is difficult, how love takes a lot to make it work, that it's not simple and easy for us to uh, participate in. So I know for me, there's been many times as a pastor, as I deal with people, where I've had difficulty loving people the way God loves them. And even more recently, I've been reminded of a young man who I recently met again in jail, who some 13 years ago, I met him as a young boy. And man, this young man, when he was a kid, he just drove me nuts. In fact, I really cringed watching him come to youth group because I just knew he was just going to turn everything upside down and I was going to have to deal with a lot of drama. And I, I wrestle now realizing that his story has been so complicated. And yet I'm grateful to God that I've been reconnected with him to encourage him in his journey. And so I want us to see that this idea of love it's simple for us to say to love God and love others. It's not done without some difficulty. And the truth is, I think you probably have some stories, all of us do, where we find we have to admit that it's hard to love people, to love others around us. Because the truth is, none of us are easy to love, especially all the time. No matter how hard we try to be lovable, we just aren't. We live in a broken world with broken people, with broken relationships. And this thing of sin has totally impacted every area of our life. And that really makes it difficult for us to love and to be loved. The simple answer to this problem is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And as we talked about Jesus' way last week of being intentional, so too do we need to be intentional in loving God and loving others. It's far too easy to give up on people, to just let things go, to become complacent, and just move on from relationships when they get too messy and when they get too difficult. But the beautiful thing is, is that's not what God did for us. In fact, on this Reformation Sunday, we're reminded that God took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood to rescue us, that he engaged us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our sin, and he offered us a path to forgiveness and to redemption and to restoration. And we know he did this, why? Well, because of that great verse that we all know so well, John 3:16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Last week we unpacked this idea about the example that Jesus gave of loving others, that Jesus himself set through his earthly life while he walked amongst us. And I think we can all agree that it's easy to love people that we like, it's the people that uh, we don't like that complicates our, our ability to love. 
And when people are like us, it's very easy. But when we meet people who are not like us, it's not so much. And we know that it's exponentially difficult to love people who are different, who we would disagree with, and the people who have differing opinions and interests and desires. So with that said, we're going to take a little deeper dive this week at some of the competing interests and the desires that make it so difficult to love others. The good thing here is that the Bible is pretty clear about these things and gives us some really clear understanding of what's going on. So let's jump to the book of James in the New Testament and take a look there. So James says in chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So James is pretty clear. And it's interesting, I love the book of James because this is a book that's written by Jesus' half-brother. And so his perspective, I think, is really unique. And, and you've got to love how James comes right out and says about this passage. He says, you want to know what causes fights and quarrels among you? And as you let that question sort of hang for a moment, you think about the things or the situations in your life that do cause fights and quarrels and division. What memories come up for you? Well, I'm going to guess there's many and they're messy. So what situations get you frustrated? Well, James goes on to say, you want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. How much of your anger stems from simply not getting what we want? You see, we, we have these desires that compete with the world around us. We want an easy life. All of us do. We want obedient children. We want perfect relationships. We want part-time jobs that pay full-time salaries, right? Just we want life to be easy. And the scriptures are pretty clear in the book of Genesis about a story where this competition comes from and where this divisive desire uh, shows itself. It's in the story of Cain and Abel. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, the writer says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out into the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, it's pretty clear to see that Cain was jealous of Abel. He wanted God to look at his offering with the same favor that Abel received. His jealousy and his anger led him to murder, and the rest, they say, is history. And to be honest, we've been dealing with this mess ever since. These desires that are inside of us, our emotions, they're so powerful. They're so powerful, in fact, that sometimes we end up doing things that we're not proud of. Again, I mentioned my young friend at the beginning. I just remember one particular night at youth group, this young boy 
At that time, he was probably 12 years old. Couldn't find him. He went missing. And when we finally found him, he had hidden himself up underneath the stereo cabinet in the sound booth. I was so frustrated with him. I grabbed him by his shoulders and just said, don't you ever do that again. Now, I have to admit, I really at that moment realized I lost my cool. And in fact, even 13, 14 years later, he mentioned that as we talked here recently. So I'm not proud of that fact because I think we all have moments where we get so frustrated with another person that we lean into emotions that are just not healthy. And when we look at the scriptures, we see these kinds of stories, we know that it's not unique. I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us struggle with the difficulty of relationships, especially when we're called to love others. Because this idea of love, it asks us so much to be honest. And we look at the example that Jesus gives, and it seems almost impossible to follow. Not to mention the fact that there is this constant, uh, pervasive, and temptation, if you will, of sin all around us. We can understand then why God would say to Cain in Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. And it's that word sin that we all struggle with. And it's this idea that sin is always at our proverbial doorstep. And the truth is sin wants to have us. It wants to master us. And that's where the freedom that comes in knowing who Jesus is can set us free. And we can learn in our life to overcome the idea of being divisive and being destructive. That we can do good and new things to both love others and to live at peace. And now as we walk through the entire Old Testament, the people of God weren't able to overcome sin on their own. They needed a perfect high priest who could finally and completely offer a sacrifice worthy of total forgiveness. And as we know now, that priest was and is Jesus. But even though we have the loving example of Jesus to follow, we still need the additional empowerment that's given to us through the Holy Spirit to live a righteous and unified life. So again, the Apostle Paul writes to us through the church of Galatia. He says, chapter 5, verse 16, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. The sinful nature desires what is contrary to God. What are some of the examples of the sinful nature? Paul lays it out for us. In just a couple of verses later, he says, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, Paul says, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this list isn't obviously exhaustive, but it's a great starting point. The selfish bent of our human nature makes it difficult to love each other. We want things we cannot and should not have. We fight and we quarrel. We get jealous over petty things. And then we lose sight of the big picture. But these are not the way of love. And this is not the life that God invites us into. This is not what he, how he wants us to live. God has graciously given us the Holy Spirit so that we can live a fruitful life of righteousness. And then he goes on a few verses later and says what that is. It's the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, 
faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, he says. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Now, this idea of the fruit of the Spirit, it can be evident in the life of others. It can also be evident in our own lives as well. If we take an honest look at our own life, yours and mine, you take a look at your relationships and the way that you love others, the question can be, are you loving? Are you joyful? Are you peaceful? Are you patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle? And are you self-controlled? These are all the evidences of life lived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's not to say that we're always going to be perfect, because we will not. That's our struggle until we join Jesus in heaven. But that's where the complete and total forgiveness of Jesus comes in. That's where the power of Jesus steps into our brokenness and suffering. We must learn to submit to him, to give our lives to him, the good, the bad, and everything in between. And I have to admit, it is a humbling statement to think that you're difficult to love, that I'm difficult to love. It's also uh, equally humbling to admit how you experience great difficulty in loving others. But these are places that we start. These are the places that we seek to love like Jesus did and to follow his example. The good thing is that the book of James not only introduces the reasons behind much of our relational difficulties, it also provides the potential antidote, if you will. James goes on to say in chapter 4, verse 7, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You see, we have to learn to humble ourselves before God. It's just that simple. That's where it starts. We have to start by submitting ourselves to him and being obedient to all that he shows us, to the ways that he tells us we should live and how we are to express our love and our affection to others. Much like being a child to a parent, we must trust and obey God because we know he has our best interests in mind. Remember, we read this a couple weeks ago as we talk about this loving God and loving people. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So this is hard stuff. And we know that it's filled with all sorts of uncertainty in our own story. And again, our friends from the He Get Us campaign offer this video to help connect people to the realities of the anxiety that each person experiences. why this campaign is touching people in such an incredible way is the reality that we all struggle with these things. And so the idea of humbling ourselves, that's a hard thing to do. Pressing into God is a hard thing. Washing our hands and ridding our lives from sin is hard because it's always there in front of us. But Jesus never said it would be easy. In fact, he actually said the exact opposite. He warns us many times throughout the New Testament that we're going to experience difficulty and we're going to experience suffering in this life. 
But as we learn in James chapter 4, verse 10, he says, If we humble ourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. You see, that's the hope. That's the promise. That's the understanding. I think we can all admit that humility doesn't come naturally to any of us. The idea of being humble is not anything that we really want to pray for, right? In fact, we are all much more naturally inclined to be selfish, to be prideful, and to be even obstinate, which then makes loving God and loving others and ourselves very difficult to do. So here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to take a few moments, take inventory of your relationships, and ponder your attitude this coming week in those relationships. And then think back through the list of the fruits of the spirits there from Galatians chapter 5. Do you see in your life the evidence of the Holy Spirit? Is there righteous fruit coming uh, from your life as you live life with yourself and others? If not, then the good news is that it's never too late to humble yourself and ask for help. And how do we do that? Well, James tells us, again, we ask in prayer. And then we also ask those around us. We realize that how important community is for us. We ask our friends and we ask our family. And then the thing we do is we invite others into our life to learn to help us walk through the difficulty of relationships. We know this is true. We live in a world that's broken, that's upside down, with people who are broken and upside down, who are in relationships that are broken and upside down. And we know, too, that sin has completely entered into every aspect of our life. But the good news is that Jesus has entered into this very world. He's taken on flesh and moved into the neighborhood, and that he has conquered the power of sin and death so that through him, through what he did on the cross for us, we are saved by grace so that we could experience the fullness of life, a life that's restored, a life that's redeemed. But it begins first with humbling ourselves before him, and then in doing that, he will lift us up. And so let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful for this truth, even on this Reformation Sunday, that we aren't saved by anything other than your good work on the cross. We don't deserve it, and we're grateful that you took our penalty of sin, you poured out your blood to restore us to be your sons and daughters, and we're grateful for that. And We just pray with thankfulness to you in your name. Amen.